you have your Bibles, we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. And I like studying books of the Bible. And this year I just felt like, you know, reading through Mark's Gospel. And the other night I caught a segment from the Chosen series. I don't know if you've ever watched that. It's really an amazing uh, show. And, you know, just seeing the highlights of, of Jesus' life reminded me of the Gospel stories. His life, as you know, was well documented. But now we are coming to the climax. Things are about to get real for the Lord. I want to read, starting here in Mark 11, I want to start in the seventh verse and read down to verse 10, and then we're going to pray. Uh, this is what we're celebrating on this Palm Sunday. It says, they brought the colt to, to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the palm trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed out cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now let's pray. Father, this morning, we just thank you for uh, your life, for the scriptures that tell us about who you are. And I pray, Lord, for an impacting, powerful word today. We are so grateful for your death, your burial, your resurrection. Today we want to celebrate who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, I grew up, you know, here in town, and I went to this small little country school called Elder Grove. Now it's a metropolis. I don't know if you've ever been out over there. But when I was there, it was like, you know, one once old school building. Anyone old enough to remember those days? Yeah. Now, I had this love for sports. My kids always ask me, what did you do when you were on my age? And I played ball every recess, every day. I was the king of the court. Until about the fifth grade when my friend Chris Beery showed up, who was a foot taller than me. And he beat me in one-on-one -on -one basketball, and he became the king. And uh, I was a little shocked by that because, you know, that dude was an imposing force, and he never did relinquish his kingdom all the way through high school, I had to play ball with him. So maybe that's how the Pharisees felt when Jesus came strolling through town riding on a donkey. They might have felt outmatched, uh, uh, unable to compete with the king. Because that's what he's doing. The crowds are before him. We read what he, they said in verse 9. They, they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. So on this Palm Sunday... What we're doing is celebrating Jesus in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus was celebrated among the people as the king. That, that's Palm Sunday. We call it the triumphal entry. That, that's what he's doing. He's announcing his kingship. And he, he's really inaugurating uh, this kingdom in an impromptu manner. Uh, I read a book called The Life of Christ when I was doing some seminary studies. And in that book, it, it really described the genealogy of Jesus. It, it documented everything he was you know, doing, his, his lineage. You know that the Romans had basically appointed Herods as the king. They, they, they were uh, illegitimate rulers appointed by the Romans. And if they had followed their laws that were set up, Jesus actually would have had the rightful claim to be the king of Israel. Like, like it was set for him to be that way. It, it, that really blew me away. It wasn't just a spiritual thing where he's the king, he literally should have been a king appointed upon the throne because his genealogy was, was recorded. Now, when they're throwing cloaks uh, along the road, when they're laying down palm branches, uh, what they're doing is they're in recognition of his kingship. 
Because these guys are fully aware of what Zechariah had prophesied, Zechariah 9 and verse 9, that the king would come lowly riding on a donkey. They understood the messianic implications that were associated with this. So when clothes were laid upon the back of a donkey, when they shouted Hosanna, which means the Lord save, when, when they cried out about the kingdom of our father David, what they're identifying is that Jesus is the king. People were celebrating it. It was, it was like a, a celebration. That's what we're doing Palm Sunday, celebrating Jesus in his kingdom. But you know, the problem with people and the problem with crowds is that they're quite fickle. Because in one week's time, these guys go from hooping and hollering, celebrating, to the following week, they're like, you know, the queen in Alice in Wonderland. They want to off with his head. They want this man to be crucified. They're screaming about it. And that's what people do. So in this climactic moment, I want to highlight verse 11, when it says that Jesus went into Jerusalem and looked at the temple. And it says, he looked around at everything, and the hour was late. So he went to Bethany with the twelve. Here's Jesus surveying the scene. He's analyzing his next game plan. And what I want to do this morning is give you a little analysis of spiritual authority. I'm going to do a little case study on what it means to carry authority, because that's what kings do. Kings carry authority. And according to the book of Revelation, God has made us kings and priests on the earth. That means that you have a certain level of spiritual authority that you're meant to walk in. And Jesus was walking in a other level of, of uh, authority. I mean, he had out-of-this-world authority against the Pharisees. And as a king, he's going to start rebuking the ruling class of the day. Now, let's, let's just kind of walk through what happens this next week of his life as he's made this entry into Jerusalem. Look, look at verse 12. It says, the next day, we could say Sunday morning, or excuse me, Monday morning. Because it's Palm Sunday, he went through there. So Monday morning, verse 12, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. There was no Dunkin' Donuts to stop at. There was no McDonald's to get a little uh, Egg McMuffin. And they said that they saw, he saw a fig tree from far off. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And the Bible tells us why, because it was not the season for figs. So in response to it, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And then it gives us a little curious detail. His disciples heard it. They heard him say that. Now, here's the first observation I can make about spiritual authority. And it's that authority is released through blessing or cursing. Jesus cursed a fig tree, all right? That's not an everyday occurrence. This is a very unusual thing, evidenced by the fact that the disciples heard it. it. It piqued their interest. You know, God never does anything arbitrarily. It's not like, you know, there's these just spontaneous things that just happen. He's very intentional about everything that he does. And the Bible is this perfect record of, of filled with little details that give us truths about things. And so when he cursed the fig tree, I mean, this is like many other things in the Bible, it's got multiple levels of meaning to it. On one level, you know, what we can see here is, is in the natural. I mean, he cursed the fig tree. You read down later, the next day in verse 20, they came back and that fig tree had dried up from the roots. It surprised them. So that did happen. There's also the symbolic level. 
Because when he's cursing the fig tree, it represents Israel. And probably his disciples would have been aware of that, that he could have been quoting from the Old Testament book of Micah. And he's basically saying that Israel would no longer be serving uh, under God's purposes. Like they wouldn't be the instrument of his, of his purpose. And it kind of piqued their interest. Then there's the spiritual level, which has to do with releasing authority through blessing or cursing, through the words that you speak. You know, that is what the Bible says in Proverbs 18, that death and life are in the power of your tongue. And if you understand that and can apply that, the scripture says you'll eat well by the words of your mouth. I have found that sometimes when I say things, when I speak a blessing, man, it can really impact people in an incredible way. And I try to be a positive person in everything I'm trying to do, man. I, I, I try to build people up. I like them, I think, I think of myself as a positive person. I mean, I'm always trying to find good things. And then my wife tells me, hey, sometimes I, I feel like you get way too critical about me. No, I'm just telling you how it goes in my home. You probably understand you have a home too, I suppose. Uh, it made me think. We, we got talking about it. Sometimes, you know, I could blame being busy, working on homes, or I could blame whatever. But I'm telling you, what I found out is sometimes I'm upset with myself. I might say nasty things to myself. I might be frustrated with me, and it might be taken out on her. And that's just something I have to work on and, and grow in. I, I found that it, depending upon how I react to people, it can be a great blessing or it can tear people down. I mean, it's, it's a true thing. You, 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 you have the authority through the words of your mouth to be a blessing or to be a cursing. And you know, the book of James tells us that blessing and cursing can come from the same mouth. And he said, these things should not be so. You should be able to release blessing into people's lives rather than release negativity in someone's life. That should be what you use the authority that God has given you for. If you're a leader, if you're a boss, if you're a parent, you have been given authority over your children. And you know what Jesus did with his authority? He loved the little children. He let them come to him. He touched them, and that blessed them. And, you know, in my home, we got little kids, so we love to touch them. And I remember growing up, my mom had this super cheesy game where she'd chase us around and then kiss us on the floor when we could not escape from her. And I guess I didn't understand it when I was a kid, but I understand it now. <laughs> and we apply it, except instead of cheesy kisses, we do whisker burns. Uh, except I whisker burned the Stoberg kids and they started crying, so I gotta be real careful about whisker burning kids. <laughs> but I'm trying to bless them, I'm trying to touch them, I'm trying to love them, I'm trying to use parental authority to, to, to just speak into their life. There's something about touch that's such a powerful thing in the life of children. You know? So my mom did that, I try to do that. Now I do got some neighbors though in our cul de sac, and you might hear them screaming at their kids, being upset, cursing them out. And if you want to raise awkward, angry children, that's a good way to do it. Because you can be negative, and, and you'll watch the ramifications of that throughout a person's life. I mean, you have been given authority in your life to, to bless or curse with your words. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. Uh, you know what else carries authority? Is when you're praying. When you're releasing blessing. It's so interesting that in the next verses, in verses 20 through 26, when, when that fig tree was cursed, the disciples were so shocked about it. And Jesus said, have faith in God. If you say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and don't doubt in your heart, but believe those things you say will be done, you'll have whatever you say. He's telling them, if you just pray and have faith, 
God will move in incredible ways. But then he quoted the next verse, verse 25 and 26, which he said, but if you have unforgiveness in your heart, it will hinder your prayer life. So if there's resentment, if there's bitterness, if you're angry about something, it is very hard for prayers to get answered. That's what Peter said. When you honor your spouse, your prayers will be answered. If you don't honor the people around you, it hinders your prayer life. There's something about blessing and cursing, being alive in your heart that allows for the blessing of God to take place. You you, you use it with your mouth, man. You have been authorized to speak words of life for people. You've been authorized to be a blessing. And and that authority works through the words of your mouth. I like what uh, the book of Deuteronomy said, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, he said, choose life. And there's something about choosing life with your words and your lifestyle and your obedience that will release God's goodness and his favor in your life. That's, what, that's how authority works. Release it through words of blessing, not, not through cursing. Now, let's take a look at uh, that same morning, verse 15. It said, when they came to Jerusalem. This is Monday morning. He's up top of the hill. He's angry because he didn't get any food. He's hangry. And he cursed that fig tree. In verse 15, it says that Jesus then went through the temple. Uh-oh, remember this story? Uh, it says he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And he taught them in verse 17 saying, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer? But you all have turned this whole thing into a business. That's what he told them. Let me tell you what this tells me about authority. It's released through blessing or cursing, but it's also revealed through reverence. That's the point of the story right here. That it, it, sometimes you can just see how much authority a person is carrying through the zeal that they have. And in John's gospel, Jesus is described as saying that he was consumed by zeal when he went into the temple and overturned at the tables. I mean, he's, he, he's on fire for the things of God. Now, only Mark's gospel records verse 16. When it says that they carried wares through the temple, I, I find that to be such an interesting old English word. They carried wares. Uh, that word actually means merchandise or vessels. And, you know, I had to do a little research on what they're talking about. So what, what's going on right here is that they would kind of journey from the Mount of Olives and they'd make their way up you know, through Jerusalem, and a shortcut was to go through the temple. And you know how it is when you're like, you know, on a trip somewhere, these guys might have had a backwards baseball hat and a backpack on. That's what the wear might have been. Filled with uh, your wife's clothes because she takes too many clothes with you when you go places. Anyone else got a wife like mine? (laughs) So they're working their way through the temple, and Jesus identified that shortcut as irreverent. And then he talked about money changers. And the reason he overturned the tables is because they were overcharging for doves. You know, in the book of Leviticus, doves could be part of the offerings that people could bring before uh, the Lord for atonement or for a peace offering or communion offering. And, And doves were the cheapest things. That means the poor people used them. And if you're making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you can't be taking your cow on a four day journey. So it's easier just to come and get a dove because that was according to the law. 
And Jesus was upset at the way they were handling the money. It was irreverent. There was something about it that was driving him nuts. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you all have turned it into a corporation. And I I don't know, I'm I'm just telling you that God is not pleased with the corporate approach to church in many places. Because right now, in the culture we have, it's like we've got this overemphasis on certain business models in churches. Now, I know because I get to go to church conferences or pastor's meetings, and you can go places, and they will present you with a business plan or a business model about how you can maximize the ministry. And some of the principles are well-intended, and they're good, and they're true, and they work, but there is sometimes this overemphasis where people take that approach to church in an attempt to grow something, make something happen. I remember one guy in Seattle, man, he was blowing it out of the park. And he was talking about how his church was really a brand. And what was so interesting was they had a business plan. Uh, They could tell you exactly how much each seat would account for. You know, they said, if you got a family of four, you're probably going to count that as a hundred bucks per seat based upon what a family would give. And so they would cater service times around that and try to get models and strategies on how they could maximize the investments and getting seats. And, and all this is going on, and he's going from conference to conference and teaching people how to do that. And I'm telling you, when that thing came crashing down, it's because it, things like that don't honor the way God does church, man. Sometimes we overemphasize the, the, the certain aspects of church. That's what Jesus is, is, is correcting right here. You know, the American church lacks reverence. And as a society, we are such a cynical group of people these days. I mean, you're cynical about politics. You watch the news and you think, man, I don't even know what to believe watching some of these guys spew on TV. That happens in churches too. People get cynical about churches. I know because I'm a pastor. You ought to see the reactions I get from people sometimes. People are cynical in the society we live in. Let me tell you something. There's a fear, the lack of fear of God a lack of reverence in churches, especially charismatic ones, you know, spirit-filled ones. Because, man, you, you'll get people who will prophesy, and all the while they're promiscuous sleeping around with other people. And while we hoop and holler and celebrate about things, people won't confront sin in someone's life from the pulpit. We don't want to offend people. And, and then you got people who will prophesy things that are supposed to take place in the future, and when they don't happen, nobody wants to hold them accountable. Because I'll tell you what, we got a lack of reverence in many churches. The last week of Jesus' life, he's upset about the way business was being done in the house of God. Think about that. This is Holy Week. This is what he did. He was not pleased with what he saw. Think about the fear of God. When we talk about fearing him and revering him, what are we talking about? There's a great verse in Psalm 19 which says that the fear of God is clean. And enduring. You know, when I think about something that's clean, I, I think about like being out in the woods after a rainstorm, and you can kind of smell the freshness in the air. And one of my favorite campgrounds to go to is Woodbine. I don't know who, you've probably been to the Woodbine campground. And on the backside of the campground, there's a trail. And that trail goes along the Stillwater River. And if you're out there in about the month of May or June, that river is raging. You can smell the water. I mean, it, it, it's just this beautiful thing. And, and you're walking through a little gorge. It looks so beautiful, but the trail gets narrow. And you get to some spots where if you took a wrong step, you might fall into that river and be swept away. 
And that's really what the fear of the Lord is. It's something that's beautiful, but it makes you tremble. When you look at the beauty of who God is, you appreciate it, but you know that one wrong step could get you swept away, like standing over a cliff on Beartooth Highway. You don't want to take a wrong step. You're appreciating beauty, but you have to be careful. That's what Jesus said. He said, you ought to fear not him who can throw you into prison, but fear him who's got the power to cast your soul into hell. Let me tell you about life, man. It's finite. It goes by so fast, and it's coming at you quick, and you want to do everything you can to maximize your time. I want to do it the right way. I want to walk with God in purity, and that's how we should walk with God. There's a great verse in Proverbs which says that we should fear the Lord all the day long. We should be zealous for the fear of God with our lives. And there's something precious and beautiful about reverence for him. And I'm telling you, in his house, he wants to be revered. He wants to be honored. He, he wants to be celebrated as the king. And, and there's something sacred about that that in a lot of times in this culture, we forget about. And his authority was revealed in, in, in his zeal for the house of God. He was reverent in God's house. Now, I want to give you a third observation. I'm doing this little case study about what it means to carry spiritual authority. You can release words of blessing or cursing. You can see authority and the reverence a person has for the things of God. Let me give you number three. Look at verse 27. He said, they came again to Jerusalem. This is probably Wednesday morning. I'm walking you through some of the last week of his life. And it says that as he was walking in the temple, he's back in that place that two days before he cleaned out. He said, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And these guys were feeling their oats and a little upset about what he'd done. And they're going to get to the crux of the matter. By what authority are you doing this? Who gave you this authority to do these things? But it says, Jesus answered and said to them, I'm going to ask you one question. You answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Jesus wanted to know. Was it from heaven or was it from men? In a very authoritative tone, he tells them, answer me. And when they could not answer him, he said, I don't have to tell you about what authority I'm doing these things. Here, here's what I observe in this. Here, here's my analysis. That authority is realized. It, it's recognized. It's recognizable through wisdom. You know, Jesus said that wisdom is known by her children. It's known by her fruits. In other words, that it's evident. And when you're carrying authority, wisdom is going to be evident in the things that you do. It will make sense to some people. You know, the smartest people oftentimes will respond to accusations with questions. I mean, you look at Jesus' life. When they came to challenge him, he asked them questions because he's the one who's walking in authority. He said, I want you to answer me. So Jesus is flipping over tables and he's questioning the questioners. And that's really what is going to happen in this last week of his life, this next 12th chapter. I mean, they're going after him. They want to ask him all kinds of questions. They want to know who they should pay taxes to. They want to have theological answers to questions like about the resurrection. They want to know what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus is answering them and, and, and stumping them. I mean, his wisdom is on display. Man, I'm telling you, the wisdom of God is a powerful force. And the book of Proverbs says there's nothing that can stand in the way of the Lord. No wisdom, no counsel, no understanding can be in his plan. It's one of the seven spirits of the Lord. And Jesus' wisdom was on full display when he was talking to these Pharisees, man. They're going back and forth 
at each other, and, and you, you could just see the wisdom of God revealed in, in his answers. And so he starts giving them parables. He starts uh, condemning them for their behavior, and he tells people to beware of the Pharisees. Beware of their hypocritical behavior. And think about the society we have today in which so much hypocrisy is at play. Because, you know, today we've got a culture that really values possession. And so you've got a very materialistic outlook on life. And you've got people who want to project that they're doing well. And so they buy a bunch of things they can't afford. They're massively in debt. And it's like, man, people get tripped up with that. I mean, they're doing everything they can to put forward the best foot. You know, that, that really does describe so much of what we see in America today. I mean, in the book of Revelation chapter 3, he said, you think that you're wealthy and doing all these things, but really you're poor, naked, and blind. And, and when people are consumed with stuff because the culture values that, there's no wisdom there. We, we, in our culture, we value education. But it seems like a lot of educated people lack wisdom. Man, that's why you got, you know, educated people who might be doctors telling children that they need to get growth hormones and puberty blockers, and we're putting that all over kids' stuff on, on, on well-known TV channels. I mean, you got educated people, but there's no wisdom in what you're doing. You know, we, we could talk about how we value celebrity. That's what Jesus was condemning. You, we... we, we We'll value people who look amazing, and so we've got leaders who have no character. Uh, and whether it's in the government or whether it's in churches, I mean, you can just see the lack of, uh, of wisdom on full display. By the way, the wisdom of God, it, it, it's the beginning, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when you think about how wisdom works, it works through the reverence and the fear of God. We just talked about that. You know, I remember when I would go skiing when I was like 20. Man, I would fly down that hill. I'd go as fast as I could. And I think the last time I went skiing was when my first son was born and I was married. And I slowed down just a little bit because I didn't want to hit a tree. I was thinking about my, my kids, my life. It's like the way I drive cars. I had a lot of tickets when I was young. Now I have an old, clunkering, slow-moving suburban. And I, I couldn't speed if I wanted to, and I'm okay with that because <laughs> we got to haul children around <laughs> in a big tank. And that's called the wisdom of God. You know, wisdom is the ability to answer questions. It's the ability to make, apply what you know. If you know something and you have wisdom, you can make it work. And if you can make it work, you can master it. At the beginning of the year, I remember I was doing a series about you know, the things that you can master in your life. You can master your spiritual life, which is as simple as just reading your Bible every day. I mean, if you just read the scriptures and spend time with God, you'll be a spiritual giant. And uh, I like reading the one-year Bible. We just finished Deuteronomy. Uh, probably I lost half the people reading through there, through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> but we made it through. Uh, we talked about mastering your emotional life, your thought life. I mean, man, we've, we've got today a mental health crisis because people don't know how to process pain. And I love how the scriptures help a person get through that relationship. You can master a thought life. We talked about your physical body. I mean, you, you can master your health. You don't have to be a victim in the culture. You can take control of your health. And, and relationships. I mean, do you know how many problems there are in relationships and homes today? It's incredible. And if you could ever learn to effectively communicate, love on people, forgive people, man, you, you could be a blessing in someone's life. That's the wisdom of God. 
how to handle money. How are you going to plan for inflation? How are you going to make a budget? How, how are you going to you know, think about what tomorrow brings or, 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 or retirement? You, you can answer questions. Work-life balance. Finding a way to live your life. If you can answer those questions, I'm telling you, you can go far in life. You can succeed. And I always love to listen to people who can answer those questions for me. I like to you know, read books. I like to learn. I like to listen for people. I try to get mentored from people who I think know what they're talking about, men of character, men of wisdom, men of integrity. I find that that is where authority gets released. When you master a subject, you become an authority on it. And, and so I'm grateful for some voices I have in my life. I'm even grateful when people are better basketball players than me because then I can learn a little something from them. I want to ask you about where you're at in the authority that God has given you. Are you using your words for blessing or cursing? Are you building people up or tearing them down? And I'm telling you, this is a real thing. I am a positive person, but I've been in a season here, I'm getting tired working on my house and you get frustrated and you might take it out on people. And I felt recently the Lord checked me on that. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be a blessing wherever I go. I'm willing to be accountable for my words. You're going to give an account one day for the things you said. That's what Jesus said. And you, you got to take inventory. Are you treating people with honor, dignity? Or are you just hating on your mother-in-law? I mean, who, who, are you able to, to be a blessing to people? Think about that, man. You, you've been authorized to release words of life to people, to, to children, to friends, to people you're overseeing. And there's something significant about that. Maybe we've got to ask the question if you've lost sight of the fear of God. A lot of people lack reverence in the culture. Uh, and I, I'm just telling you, it's, a, it's like, it, it's almost like in this culture, we don't respect anything and cynicism is rewarded. And one of the ways you can tell if you might have lost the fear of God in your life is when you no longer feel convicted over sin. You say things that are nasty and critical and feel nothing about it. Or you might have behavior that you justify that's sinful. And I'm telling you, Jesus, he's got fire in his eyes. He knows, he's walking up and down the aisles of churches and he knows what's going on in the house of God. And he came to clean house in those days. And the scripture tells judgment begins in the house of God. And I'm telling you, across the board, you, you start seeing where he's intervening in scandalous situations. And it should make your ears perk up. It should make you think about your own life. Or what about the wisdom of God? How many of you want more wisdom in your life? When people say to me, what can I pray for you for? I'm like, pray for wisdom. And I always ask for wisdom. I, I always pray for, I could always use more wisdom. And here's the beautiful thing that you can know about the wisdom of God. That it's available to you right now. Jesus, the Bible says, is your wisdom. He's your righteousness, your sanctification. He's your redemption. And everything you'll need to know is found hidden in the treasures of Christ. That's what the scripture says. When you need wisdom, it's available to you if you call on it and ask him for it. That's what the book of James says. It says if you need it, ask for it. He'll give it to you liberally. When, when, when I need an answer, when I need a solution, what, what, what I ask God. And he shows up in incredible ways. Man, he, you know, he gives you the ability to solve problems. There's something so significant and so sacred about his problem-solving ability. 
And I feel like this morning, there's a pool of wisdom in the house of the Lord that you need to take a big drink from. I feel like the Lord is going to give you insight, answers, and revelation this week to some problems that you've had. That way, when you're walking in in your job, at school, whatever situations you're faced with, the wisdom of God will be there for you. That's the authority he's given you. He's given you opportunity to ask for wisdom and find it. That's what Jesus had everywhere he went. And I want to pray the wisdom of God over you this morning. Is that all right? How many of you could use more wisdom? Yeah, just put a hand up and say, I need wisdom, Lord. So, Lord, you said ask, and we shall receive. You, you, we, we pray, Lord, that wisdom would be available to your people. We pray that we would know what to do. I pray for the Holy Spirit, which is inside of us, to come up with insights, answers, scripture verses, and even, even conviction about things that we may have said or things that we may have done because we might perceive it's hindering us from walking with you. So I pray the wisdom of God. I pray the strength of God over your people. God, give us insight. Give us clues to things. Mm. I, make it easy. I, I pray it would not be difficult, but it would be easy to hear from you. Easy to receive your wisdom. Easy to know what to do. Lord, this morning we are just so thankful for your wisdom, your insights, your goodness. Mm. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen and amen. Man, I just, I just have the sense that God's wisdom is here and available. And if you'll call on it, if you'll ask him for it, then he'll do it. He'll do something great in your life. I, I was uh, putting my kids to sleep this week. <laughs> and we were reading through some kid stories. And uh, I did find one curious story about a king who was a wealthy, well-known king, lived a long time ago. And he had tremendous success and tremendous wealth. And every time he would go take over lands that he won by conquest, he would build his castles on them. And he would impose his authority everywhere he went. But as the years went by, he was realizing that one day he too would have to face death. And so he began to make plans for how he would die and and what he wanted for his funeral arrangements to be with his counselors. And Basically, he said, I want to be put at the highest spot in the castle, overlooking my kingdom with a view. And, you know, I just kind of want you to seal me in there, lock the door. I want to forever be looking out over my kingdom. And so they got it ready. They got the room ready. They had a bed made for him. They had a throne in there. They had a Bible that was laid out for him. And he passed away. Now, about 100 years later, another king arose in the land who uh, didn't know anything about what had happened. When he discovered that king's wishes, they wanted to unseal the doors, they wanted to go up into the room, and they wanted to see what it was like up there. And when they went up to see what it was like, they were amazed. They found there on a throne a skeleton in tattered clothing with a crown tipped off to the side. To their amazement, they saw what used to be a finger, and now was bone opened up to the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 36, in which the Bible says, what will a man give What will profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? That was what the guy was thinking about his last moments. Some people live their lives like they're the king of the world. You know that? And I'm telling you, there's one king, and that king is Jesus. And on Palm Sunday, he announced his kingship. And the scripture says that one day, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow before that king. And I just want to give you the opportunity this morning to meet the king. If you don't know him, 
If you've never met him, he's a king who loves you and rules supremely in your heart. And he's worth celebrating and he's worth my honor and he's worth my reverence. So if I could get every head bowed, every eye closed, there's a king that can be the ruler of your heart. His name is King Jesus. If you don't know him this morning, I want to give you the opportunity. Put a hand up and I want to pray with you. Man, I, I am uh, I'm grateful for King Jesus. Amen. Will you stand up with us this morning? We're grateful for a king. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you came out to church this morning. You know, we, we value you. We bless you. I'm looking forward to Easter Sunday. How many of you are coming out for Easter this next week? Man, we're going to have a great time. Yeah, I want to challenge you to invite somebody out. You probably heard that many times this morning. We got some invite cards. And we're having our first ever Good Friday service come up. And on Good Friday, we will be singing some hymns. I know some people love to sing hymns. I think we might be playing the old rugged cross because we got an old rugged cross. And I wanted to thank my friend John Johnson. He's the gentleman with the long beard. Brother Hezekiah, that's what I call him. So if you see a man with a long beard, pull it down and say, thank you for building that wonderful cross, amen? Yeah, because Jesus is coming off that cross next week weeks to come, amen? Amen. Love you all very much. If you want prayer, the altars are open. And uh, we'll catch you all next week. God bless.